0: Good, Good afternoon. afternoon. Welcome, Welcome to the, the Aspen Weight Live Stream. Stream. For those of you who are um, who, who who enjoy what we talk about today, um, then I would I would urge you to watch two programmes. Probably one would be the Last Kingdom, which is centred around uh, Anglo-Saxon uh, uh, life, uh, and um, and also uh, the Vikings, which is obviously about the Vikings. But uh, the Vikings certainly in a couple of the series uh, spend a lot of time with King Alfred and so on and so forth. Egbert, so
1: um
0: egbert. what was that Egg, egbert. egbert as well egbert yes but, but yes but alfred as well i think anyway uh a lot of uh, sorry about this uh so um uh, it's been a special day for me so i did my first radio show this morning which um uh greatly exceeded my expectations so uh i think asper weight radio is is really gonna go, go from strength to strength and it's been really good so far i know the Reaction to Callum and my uh, VE Day special was was exceptional, um, and I and I'm told we had we've had nearly 50,000 viewers of the John Joe O'Neill uh, interview, which um, I, I find quite staggering actually. Uh, so very honoured about that. So anyway, we're gonna Callum and I both have a propensity to talk for England, uh, talking about England. Um, so we're gonna attempt to cover. Look at, him, look at him shaking his head as if as if he would talk too much. Um, so uh, in the remaining 55 minutes, we're going to try to get to an hour today. Um, we're going to basically talk about the birth of the English nation, I guess. Um, and we're going to go on a journey from roughly the year 410 A.D. Uh, to 1066, when um, obviously we had the Battle of Hastings and um, Anglo-Saxon life was disrupted for good uh, by uh, the invasion of the the Normans uh, through William the Bastard, better known in history as William the Conqueror, uh, probably one of my least favourite people in history, along with Henry VIII. Um, although, it, uh, because I've always very much identified with the, obviously, the Anglo-Saxon side, but that's uh, that's something for eight weeks' time when we, we'll, we'll actually, Callum and I will do a whole show um, about um, the Battle of Hastings um, and how it arose and, and the outcomes of it. So... Um, what I'm going to do first before I, b- I bring Callum in, so we're going we're to basically um, split the duties today in terms of educating you. So Callum's going to set the scene of of what um, Britain was like uh, prior to the Anglo-Saxon uh, immigration. Let's call it that before. We, let's not use the word invasion because that's one. It would be interesting to see whether Callum thinks it's, it's more of an immigration or an invasion. Uh, th- that would be a good one to ask him about. Um, and I'm going to f- I'm, I'm going to focus more on um, uh, you know the the end point. Uh, so we're going to start off today, uh, taking you from around 410 AD to uh, somewhere around 650. Uh, so that's the the first part of the um, Anglo-Saxon uh, period of rule, really. And so if I just uh, very quickly uh, take you listeners, because I know history isn't always a strong point with a lot of you listening. So um, Britain, Britain, prior to the Roman conquest, uh, which was around 44 AD, um, uh, was a very tribal society. Basically, um, I guess uh, the best way of describing it was no matter where you went, you'd think everyone was Welsh uh, in in today's vernacular. Um, or Cornish. So that's, what was that? Or Cornish. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Interesting you should say that, because uh, Cornwall, as you probably know, Callum, uh, the kingdom was referred to as the West Welsh. Um, yeah, that's right, yeah. So that's So, um, so I'll I stand by my point that everyone spoke Welsh. Um, so, um, yeah, we had a diverse number of tribes, no cohesion. Um, and eventually, after, after, after a, a fail, couple of failed attempts, where the Romans thought we were all rather sort of barbaric and scary people, and the soldiers generally were scared. I think is is true to say. Um, eventually, um, under the uh, under the emperorship of Emperor Claudius, um, the the Romans finally uh, managed to get a foothold in in Britain. And then, uh, for around just under four hundred years, uh, we had uh, Roman rule. So Britain, then I think the, the correct reference in history would be Romano-British. Um, so uh, we we had a, a, a flourishing um, Britain under Romano uh, rule. Uh, obviously, uh, the Brits themselves all lived in, obviously, you know, Roman style accommodation with Roman habits, etc. Uh, we fast forward through to the end of the Romano period, basically, Rome's being plundered by uh, tribes, the Goths, the Vandals, the Visigoths, all these sort of people. Uh, read about those because they're well worth uh, a look as well. Um, and basically uh, the Romans decided that um, Britain wasn't worth defending anymore. They had bigger fish to fry and they basically said, sorry, Brits, uh, we're pulling all our troops out and we're going back to the ranch. So um, that left, that left um, the the Britons, the Romano Britons, I think as we could call them, um, uh, basically left at the mercy of, um, of, of invaders, etc. So, um, yeah. What would be really good, Callum? Perhaps uh, so. We start off. Perhaps you could tell us um, what life was like around that time, and um, and and perhaps the the early part of um, how we got to the the legend of King Arthur, for instance, and and yep. who he was fight, who he was fighting against, and and where they came from.
1: Okay. Yeah. So by the time that the Romans left. Britain in about 410 AD um, I think it's worth mentioning you know it's not like they all just like packed up and and left all together overnight they they would have different parts of Britain the Romans would have left at different times and under slightly different circumstances but it's widely agreed that they'd uh, left completely by 410 AD so by that point all the Romano-British people um obviously were completely completely assimilated into the uh, Roman way of life. Um, obviously after, you know, 400 years of occupation. So, you know, they would have lived in villas, you know, Roman style towns. Um, you know, these are large towns. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously modern day London is, uh, was it Londinium? Mm-hmm. Uh, York was founded by the Romans at the time. It was called Aboracum. um Canterbury. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Canterbury, which is obviously still just Canterbury. And at the time, um, <laughs> yeah. Roxeter in Shropshire, which is just a village in Shropshire, but at the time, Roxeter was uh, another one of the major Roman um, towns. Um, yeah, so everyone would have lived in villas, lived in these nice, bi- these these big towns and settlements. Um, and it's um, it's reported that the Saxons, the Anglo Saxons, started raiding uh, south and east Britain in the fourth century AD but were beaten back, obviously, by the Roman armies. And actually, along the whole east coast of England, from the northeast down to the southeast, there are actually remains of um, fortifications that were set up to deal with these um, invaders. Um, But obviously, when the Romans pulled out, um, part of of the problem was, is that the Romans deliberately didn't encourage the Romano-British people to train in... In arms um, to have much of a military or anything like this. So once the Roman armies pulled out, um, they were quite uh, defenceless, really, against any incoming invaders.
0: Can I just jump jump in there, please, please, old chap? Um, so one one of the things I I, I wanted to get your uh, to get a view on, and obviously tell the the, the listeners, is actually um, one of the things that bizarrely happened to start with. As Callum rightly says, uh, the Romano-British were ill ill prepared for defending themselves, Um, there was no real cohesion or military force and uh, how the um, how the um, the Germanic tribes, let's call them that to start with, because that's something I want to talk to you about in a minute, because obviously your reference just to Anglo-Saxons is slightly incomplete uh, in terms of the whole. Um, To start with, um, uh, the invading Germanic peoples were actually uh, hired as mercenaries to to help protect romano british Uh, i I believe that's true isn't it
1: yeah i mean i think with with these things it's important to say is uh no historian knows a hundred percent or maybe it's more accurate to say is history doesn't know a hundred percent different historians have slightly different views a bit like what you were saying earlier there's there's a there's an argument of whether you know whether they were they an invading force that came in and slaughtered everyone and took over or did they just sort of come and uh, you know assimilate themselves into the culture? So there is a little bit of, um, you know, there's a little bit of uh, confusion with that. There isn't a whole lot of um, written accounts from the time, um, but there is some. That I did find an interesting uh, piece of uh, literature from a Christian cleric called Gildas, <laughs> who lived in uh, who lived in modern day Cornwall. I can yeah. tell you about that if you would like. Yeah. Um, so he wrote. That he describes the uh, in his account, the departure of the Roman army, followed by the arrival of what he described as bloodthirsty invaders who <laughs> killed the native, popu- the native British population or drove them into exile. Um, Gildas wrote this in about 500 AD. Um, yeah. In, in most likely what would be modern day Cornwall. So it's interesting that you know that is what uh, Gildas writ in about 500 AD.
0: Yeah, again, you know, so um, obviously Callum and I are both rather fastidious about this, so I have a I have a very strong opinion on this subject. So uh, from 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 uh, from what I've read over the years, um, uh, it's generally estimated that somewhere around twenty thousand uh, people came from uh, Northern Europe. Let's let's leave it at that. For now, and Callum might tell us what Northern Europe means. Um, and even at the peak of uh, Anglo Saxon early influence, uh, there's considered to be something like an eight to one balance between the local uh, Romano British population and the uh, immigrants, shall we say. So it's quite interesting that, um, so th- this notion that um, uh, you know the the Anglo-Saxons and other Germanic tribes came e- over to England and uh you know sort of slaughtered them wholesale and uh, all the British died and the Saxons were left is is complete bunkum um in my opinion so it's much more a case of i mean clearly there 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 would have been uh you know a degree of murder and, and whatever in order to to create um the opportunity i guess in the first place but i think you know, really what happened to understand properly what happened is uh, the Germanic tribes came into to England. And um, I think probably a better way of putting it would be they dominated them culturally, maybe because the Romano-British had no strong culture of their own. It's interesting. I, I was doing some reading yesterday, Callum, and I didn't really know this before. And apparently there are a couple of other examples in history where a minority group has gone into a country and effectively that minority has ended up shaping uh the national destiny and culture of that country
1: yeah yeah no well, it's, it's very interesting and um i suppose we're getting almost a bit more into like a philosophical debate here but um I, I suppose maybe you could say all of these people that were coming over from um from northern europe so maybe now would be a good time to uh try to actually yeah. describe in, in a little bit more detail so The group that is collectively known as Anglo-Saxons were actually three tribes from northern Europe. The Angles, the Saxons and the Jutes. Jutes, Um, The Angles were from a place called Angeln, which is now a small district in northern Germany. The Saxons were from what is now Lower Saxony, also in northern Germany. And the Jutes were from Jutland, which is a part of southern Denmark um but maybe uh, i think what we were saying about the romano british people you know they they weren't taught to take up arms they were probably almost like bred to be quite subservient people although they would have Mm. seen themselves probably uh, you know as both uh, as roman they would have seen themselves as british as well but they would have seen themselves as british and roman they were probably without realizing it quite um subservient people and and um all of a sudden you know you've got these tribes coming in and uh they were farmers, but they were first and foremost warriors, these people. And, I mean, mm. with with a warrior mindset comes um, a level of assertiveness um, and, you know, even aggression at times. And I think, you know, people that are very, very passive are prone, obviously, to be led by people that are far more naturally assertive, aren't they?
0: Yeah. What would, what would be interesting, Callum? Not to say, we, we don't have, unfortunately, you know, we don't have a huge amount of time today to go into... This period in micro detail, but um, I'd like—I I'd just like to have a quick discussion with you about the, the the birth of Arthur as a as a concept. And I think what's remarkable is, you know, we have this reference to the period we're we're talking about today as the Dark Ages. And actually, I think I'm right in saying both you and I love this period of history. And I think um, it does the the people of the time a huge injustice. Uh, to refer to them as the dark ages, and of course what what is uh truly remarkable is uh, we have a warlord probably it'd be interesting to get your view on this. we have the emergence of a romano british warlord somewhere in the mid fifth century who succeeds in uniting the the locals and 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 wins a series of um battles i think the The most famous one is at Mount Baden, um, that, uh, uh, where, where, um, you know, there was a defining victory of the Romano British. And of course, um, you know, even now, what, what's the saying that when England's, when England needs him, he'll wake, he's in, he's just asleep and he'll come back and, and save us King Arthur, you know, and of course you've got all these Disney films and, uh, lots and lots of films and, and, and probably, you know, uh, true for instance you you, you you even you would be aware of king arthur wouldn't you you know so king arthur is is somebody that's gone into um he english oh well, yeah sorry yeah but I'll just anyway <laughs> king arthur has gone down into in, you know legends, i'd say i mean he is just this immense character in english history um and i i'm interested in your opinion as to whether you actually think he existed for a start and then perhaps we could have a an exchange of opinions on that
1: yeah sure um now of course I've I've always been interested in, in King Arthur, but I contacted um my friend Jake last night because mm-hmm. although I'm I've always been interested in, in King Arthur, I don't I don't I don't think I'm an expert on the, on the subject, but my friend uh, Jake, Jake Ayers, as in Josh's little brother, yeah. um he's he um di- he's got a degree in uh, medieval history and one of the things he specializes in is King Arthur. That's you know, he's like fascinated okay. by it. So he's Done, he spent more time in his life researching King Arthur than anyone I know. So I contacted him last night. I thought it would be interesting to get his opinion on it. So he let me in on some um, some interesting facts. Um, there isn't actually many historical records at all that reference flat out um, Arthur or a King Arthur. There is a, a Welsh chronicle from the sixth century that mentions that an Arthur led a battle. Mm. There's also a Welsh poem from about a century later talking about another leader. And one of the lines, there's something like, he was no Arthur. That is pretty much the only proof of a historical figure. He doesn't actually get solidified into literature until the 12th century in Geoffrey of Monmouth's history of the Kings of England, <laughs> which yeah, is I entirely did, yeah. mythic, which is, a, which is a mythic book. Um, so I was really interested in, in, in uh, Jake's opinion on this. Um, And he said that he thinks that Arthur was most likely real, Mm. um, that he was a British warrior of some renown, probably not actually a king. um, But he would have been a great warlord, fought extremely well and have built such a reputation that he was preserved originally in oral tales around which that mythology would eventually have grown into being the, the, the mythic figure that he is today. Um, before I pass over back over to you Pops so I just thought it'd be worth mentioning as well obviously as the people um, yeah. and yet again Drew will like this one obviously one of the the tales of King Arthur is that um, he's asleep under Glastonbury Tor which mm. um, for anybody listening Glastonbury Tor is only about 10 miles from uh, Mr Pop's house and about 20 miles from mine um, so yeah so uh, as uh, you were saying that the one of the myths go that King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table are asleep under Glastonbury Tor, and in um, the time of Britain's most dire need, they will rise and they will, uh, you know, come up from Glastonbury Tor and and vanquish whatever great foe is put before us.
0: Yeah, I think um, I think what's quite interesting actually, I just um, you know before we we move on from King Arthur because he's such an important character. Um, my personal view is that probably he was a a, a, Roma, a Romano-British chap called Ambrosius. Um, and um, uh, I'm, I'm not sure how... Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not clever enough to know how Ambrosius got uh, defined back to Arthur, probably other than, as you say, Geoffrey of Monmouth reinvented him. Uh, and of course, the Victorians have a lot to play in this as well, because the Victorians sort of reinvented the whole concept of Englishness, as you probably know. Um, so, you know, there was undoubtedly, uh, I think, you know, whether, whether, so there obviously was never, a, 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 a bloke that came along and pulled a sword out of a stone or, or anything like that, you know, um, I think there was undoubtedly a strong military leader. Uh, I think he was almost certainly not a king, as you say. Um, and he was probably, um, some sort of, uh, indigenous, uh, member of the roman army that that's chose to stay probably um and and then i think the other thing that's quite interesting callum is that obviously we as you say as um as somerset folk um i think king arthur is very much identified with our part of the world you know and um but of course there's two other um two other parts of britain who also have big claims on him and of course there's cornwall um that very much um consider that arthur came uh from cornwall and then more recently i think in my lifetimes it wouldn't have been said um prior to i don't know 1970 perhaps um there's now you know quite a lot of strong archaeological evidence to suggest that actually arthur was a northerner so whoever whoever was the person that created the myth wasn't actually from the west country at all but that's that's not for today's show i guess um I think I'd just like to pick up on, I'd just like to uh, obviously embellish uh, a couple of things you said. So um, uh, another part of northern Europe where people came from was Friesia. Um And so probably um, there would be, uh, so I suppose really if you were looking at it very simplistically, uh, you've got D- Danish people, German people and a few Dutch uh, basically deciding that Britain's quite a fertile place and let's jump in a boat and go over there. And if we then look at, uh, as Callum rightly says, um, you've got the Angles, the Saxons and the Jutes. So um, as a generalization, the Angles settled in uh, what is now called East Anglia. Uh, And of course, uh, East Anglia is named after the Angles. So that's the whole point is East Anglia. Um, And um, the Saxons Saxons basically uh, occupied the main body of England, and the Jutes were mostly in Kent. I think that's right, isn't it?
1: Yeah, that's right, yeah. Um, And then... Sorry, uh, sorry. there's also um, some Jutes did actually um, settle in southern England, so um, probably Dorset area, if I had to say. Mm -hmm. Um, So in in Wessex, basically, what was known as Wessex, but I know that it was more sort of, um, you know, against the sea, so I would imagine sort of Dorset area. Devon-Dorset area? So what's quite interesting is, um, and
0: and, and of course, as as Callum rightly says, um, most of the information we have about the period um, originally came from uh, texts uh, and and scriptures and and writings that, that that were done looking backwards, so many, many years after the events. And of course, one of the things that's always true about history is history's written from the point of view of the, of the victor normally. Uh, so, uh, you don't necessarily get, um, you know, the true emphasis of, of what actually happened. It's somebody's romantic view of what happened, you know? Um, so to some extent, you know, we know that there was, uh, an armed struggle between the indigenous Romano-Brits and the, uh, Germanic tribes that were entering, um, England really, uh, and um, and then I think quite quickly, really, uh, that that conflict ends. And of course, we'll never really know quite how it ended. Um, and certainly by the time we get to um, you know the end of the fifth century, for instance, and 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 and, and after that, um, so it might be worth just telling everyone what what England, well, and Britain probably looked like uh, at that time. So we had. Effectively, um, seven I think seven kingdoms in in England. Uh, so we had effectively the kingdom of the Angles, which was East Anglia. Uh, we had Sussex, Kent, and Essex. So Essex was effectively the land of the East Saxons. Sussex was the land of the South Saxons, and Kent was the land of the Jutes. Uh, we then had uh, three three other. So if, I, I, I'm not going to realise that I probably adds up to more than seven. But so I, I'm only supposed to be an accountant, for goodness sake. Um, so we then got, as we discussed earlier, we have um, a part of England, um, which to, to this day uh, probably has more in common with Wales than it does the rest of England, being Curnow uh, in, in its Celtic form or Cornwall. Uh, and as we said, it, it, it was referred to as the land of the West Welsh. Uh, very, very proud uh, very independent people, uh, unlike anywhere else in England, and I think probably it's just so far away and the terrain as such that it, it managed to retain its independence. And then, really, roughly speaking, there were three. There were really three other kingdoms in in England. There was Wessex, which of course is very much dear to our hearts, Callum. Um, the Kingdom of Mercia, uh, which right up until about Alfred the Great's time was in fact the dominant kingdom in England would you agree with that
1: um I, on the whole yes um between Mercia and Northumbria for sure uh, originally
0: yeah and then um so thank you for that and then uh, uh the final kingdom was obviously um Northumbria as um, as Callum as Callum says um uh which which basically was uh <coughs> the uh, bless you um, which was basically so if we if we if we broadly said that Wessex was sort of southwest and southern England, Mercia was sort of um, uh, the Midlands uh, right up, you know, Midlands in its widest sense, I suppose. Uh, and Northumbria would have been uh, what today would be the northwest and the northeast, I guess. Uh, but that included parts of Scotland, um, which actually uh, for a very large part of British history, um were, were actually part of more part of England than they were Scotland. And if we look in, uh, just for, obviously, we, one of the things that's true, um, both uh, Callum and I, obviously, because he's my son, um, we actually have um, uh, bloodline in every of the home nations um, and, uh, and and beyond, uh, including Viking, of course. Uh, so you know, if we look in, in, in Scotland at the time, Scotland was uh, a land dominated by peoples called the Picts, um, and, um, and Wales, um, was basically, uh, the, the, ancient Britons, uh, you know, very much the same as, 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 um, uh, the English, uh, Britons would have been, but, uh, uh, obviously in a part of the country where the Romans found it more difficult to vanquish them and they, uh, were very successful in preserving their, uh, identity, which to some extent they've done to this day. So, um, well by the time of the end, end of the fifth century, we have basically got uh, a Britain, which is uh, look so Scotland, Ireland, Wales, and Cornwall are basically uh, still uh, resembling something like the original peoples, uh, and then England has become uh, a Saxon, an Anglo-Saxon, which is I think that that that, that term is takes over uh, in terms of referring to the whole the whole of the nation, although. It's generally considered that people at the time wouldn't wouldn't have referred to themselves as as anglo saxons by the way they would have they would have said they were Saxons or jutes or whatever they were
1: yeah they were just so, tribe, just tribes of people yeah yeah
0: um so um you know, it's quite it's, it's it's very interesting in itself isn't it you know in terms of um you know uh, how how identities um you know, and I suppose you know one of the reasons why, uh, even to this day, you know, if you look at the rugby, for instance, why there's such a rivalry between, say, Wales and England, or or Scotland and England, is probably is born uh, out of uh, this whole period where England became quite a distinct uh, country, and of course, uh, the, the Scottish refer to the English in in their native tongue as Sassanax, and uh, the Welsh uh, the Welsh word for uh, Saxons is Sais, uh, so, in the so the, obviously Sice and Sassanac are related words, meaning the same thing. So that's what we're called to this day. Um, so, when do you think that? Uh, do you think you know? So as you, it's interesting because you referred to uh, the peoples of the English area as tribes. So uh, in those early days, do you, do you think that that's that's sort of how it was? You know, was it was it like there were there were 10 sort of Kings and they were very much in their own little areas, you know?
1: Well, they started referring to themselves as Kings once the uh, kingdoms were established, but they originally would have just been warlords. Um, so just to make it a bit like clearer for people. So it was actually in, in the second half of the fifth century, really that we saw more um, Anglo-Saxons and Dukes arrive and, um, and by, it was about, by about 650 AD that a sporadic sort of patchwork of small kingdoms had been established by these strong chieftains who had started calling themselves kings um, of their micro-kingdoms. So, the, as, a, as Mr Pop said earlier, the, the first sort of <laughs> seven kingdoms originally were actually called Bernicia, Deira, Lindsay, East Anglia, Mercia, Wessex, and Kent – um in but in time the smaller or less successful kingdoms were absorbed into the others so either through aggression economic shift or by marriage um mm, so by the 8th century only four kingdoms remained and that was northumbria mercy don't, get ahead. don't get ahead of yourself and, please sorry
0: don't get ahead of yourself that's for another episode
1: oh yeah i know i was just i was just saying just to make it clear for people mm.
0: <laughs> that's not very hard to get Callum to stop talking you know?
1: So um, I think it's important to mention as well that um, one thing that's quite interesting is that there is a radical shift in, in culture very quickly within about 100 years so apart from London, York, Canterbury and Roxeter which uh, carried on being in use pretty much all of the Roman towns and villas were just abandoned so this is this is a quite an interesting um, fact. So it's like, you know, some people will point this as, as more evidence that they that a lot of people were killed by the invading um, barbarians. Um, and some people will just say, you know, that, you know, they, they shifted. But either way, um, the, all the buildings that started popping up were definitely more. Of the Northern European design, as opposed to the Romano-British design. So buildings stopped being made out of stone. We started being made in um, sort of like round, you know, round houses again, and long houses made out of wood, um, with um, sort of uh, like chambers underneath, which was very popular in, in parts of um, um, Denmark and Germany at the time. Um, and I, it's also important to note that the uh, at the time when uh, the Romans left. Everyone in Britain would have spoke either either ancient British, so Welsh or, or and Cornish, or they would have spoke Latin. Now that changed yes. very, very mm. that changed very very quickly, and within a hundred years, you see the bones of of what we see as our English language today. Um, so so that's something that's that's uh, very interesting to to mention for sure.
0: Yeah, um, can I uh, just so can I just jump in there? Uh, so, this is a fact for um for, for uh, it's always nice to sort of give you defining facts, you people so um it's true to say that over fifty percent of all the words in the English language as of today two thousand and twenty uh originated from uh from that period of history, so fifty percent which is a a staggering amount uh, really and what uh, became of course what 's called old english um the other thing I think that's worth pointing out, Callum, is that uh, the invaders uh, were obviously pagans to start with. So, yeah, um, right. so that presumably they would have they would have believed in people like Odin, would they?
1: Yeah, so they, they believed in people called Odin. Um, so they had the same pantheon as the Norse pantheon on the whole. Um, ever so, like tiny, tiny slight differences in language. So when, during several centuries later during the viking what we know is like the you know the danish viking invasion um mm-hmm. they would have called odin odin whereas at the time in the fifth century the people in southern denmark northern germany etc would have called him woden um yes. so you know but but same same gods same gods yeah and obviously um a lot of the you know our days of the week you know like thursday like it's, it's thursday friday Frey's day wednesday
0: wednesday
1: uh, yeah so Loads in today, yeah. Culturally hugely significant to us even today, you know.
0: Yeah. So when you know, how did so how did this um, this sort of you know seemingly barbaric murderous bunch of uh, sort of pirate soldiers um, enter enter England and then become sort of quite civilized and um, and, and get converted to Christianity? When did that happen?
1: Well, I don't think that they would have really gotten, become very civilized. I think it's important <laughs> to, I think it's important to point out that there would have been complex trade routes throughout Europe for about maybe even a thousand years before the Anglo-Saxons invaded. In fact, probably definitely for at least a thousand years before. So, But before the Jutes and the Angles and the Saxons came to Britain, they were 100% aware of it. And they'd probably even been there before, trading, things like this. Um, so Europe was an open market. So even though, um, even if the Saxons and Jutes and Angles did come in and slaughter everyone and establish their kingdoms, they would have still wanted to trade with mainland Europe. And obviously mm. one of the big powerhouses there would have been, you know, what we know today is like Italy, Rome. Yeah. And, um, obviously a lot of influence came with that. And I think that, uh, at the time it would have been obviously hugely important to, have power and at the time christianity was uh sort of the, the winning side in in uh, europe so it probably would have made most sense to 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 join jump on that bandwagon rather than um remain pagan i guess
0: yeah i think that you know i think that that process is quite defining and obviously you know you know again sort of jumping forward um that created a a notable difference uh in culture and everything really between uh, the anglo-saxons and the invading vikings for instance um the other thing i just wanted to say which you you um obviously being again proud somerset people uh callum was was remarking on um how close glastonbury is to uh, where i'm talking to you from and of course um not too far out of glastonbury there is actually a a little um saxon anglo-saxon settlement with um with uh a reproduction of what the uh, what the dwellings I suppose that's a cuz they're not houses are they uh what the dwellings would have been at the time and as you, as you say you have got um obviously that area of somerset is very um, is very famous for uh the, the reeds and and um and uh, uh the sedge aren't they? I think that's, I think that's what they are referred to as as well um which uh, the saxons used to build their roos from for instance and you know, you'd end up in a situation where uh, effectively everyone lived in this sort of big space and, and the animals would have been there too wouldn't they there's no privacy um you know in any respect of anything they did so it, was, you know, it must have been quite a basic life i guess
1: yeah um one thing i would like to say is because obviously you said that you don't think house is probably the, the correct word that the word house is actually an a- anglo-saxon word it was originally spelled H-A-U-S. So house would have been a fine um, way to describe them. Um, I think they called him Gruben House. That was the original Anglo-Saxon word that you would call any sort of dwelling that you're in, you would call it the Gruben House. Um, oh, no, yeah, somewhere. No. But um, one yeah. thing that I think is, um, it to me, is, is one of the more interesting things um, is talking about sort of, you know, what would the Anglo-Saxons actually do? So when, when they were and what i mean by that is you know not like their politics or or their religion or anything like this i'm thinking like so if you sat down in a in like a saxon hall and you were having a feast what would be going on around you Mm. so um i don't know if you you actually know your pops but you're you're like this so apparently one of their favorite one of their favorite pastimes was horse racing they loved horse racing the anglo-saxons so they they would bet on horse racing um Obviously, they were big fans of hunting and feasting. They were hugely musical people. Um, They loved making works of art, um, in terms of music, I mean. Um, They loved making music. Um, They also very much enjoyed board games. Um, It was very common to play chess and drafts in in Saxon houses. Um, And they would have had, it was quite common common to have nice, big, uh, entertaining, big feasts, and these would have usually been accompanied by harp music um, and things like juggling, things like this, and yeah, areas where you could play chess and stuff like that. So, um, quite a, quite a nice, quite a nice uh, scenario in my mind.
0: Yeah, I, I, I'm, as you know, I've got a mischievous side to me, so I'm sort of trying to think about where the Saxon accountants worked, you know, and how they. They, they they marched off in their, their tunics. It was quite joking apart, you know, obviously if you look at today's culture, which has been in place for, for a long time now, where you know, uh, modern life is, you know, people have jobs and they do, but obviously none of that would have existed then. So people, you know, people pretty much would have been divided into simple groups, you know, like you are in the army or you were a farmer or, you know, or, 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 or whatever, you know, they, they, you wouldn't have had the, um, those sort of things. So, uh, that's I think, a,
1: but that people would have been a lot more jack of all trades. So obviously, nowadays we've we've become super specialist as a society. Um, people can do like one thing very 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 well. Oh, I, I do marketing, or I, I'm an engineer, or whatever. People wouldn't have been like that in those days. So mo- most men would have been majority of men would have been farmers. You would also be warriors as well um definitely taught, taught in arms obviously but to a certain extent it would have been similar you would have obviously you'd have had your blacksmiths your carpenters so your metal workers carpenters similar to this day your your builders mm-hmm. um your musicians um your cooks obviously some better than others um so <laughs> but i think one thing that's really nice and one thing that we've we've lost with modern day society is mm-hmm. um you've definitely would have felt a, a really uh, close sense of community that you wouldn't have been able to work work alone. Everyone would have had to have worked together to make a, a, a you know a, a good settlement. Everyone would have to work together.
0: Yeah, they certainly wouldn't have locked down because of coronavirus. That's for sure. Uh, I think the other thing I said—it's it's always um, fascinating—Callum's um, uh, incredibly detailed knowledge of 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 certain things. I think, again, to me, this is just stating the obvious, but uh, sometimes the obvious isn't obvious to everyone else. So, for instance, when there were no potatoes, uh, no tomatoes, no pineapples, anything like that. You laugh, but, you know, there weren't. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the diet would have been would have been quite basic, and I think they probably only ate meat once a week, didn't they, or something like that?
1: Um, no, I think that they would have eaten meat more than that. Um, you've got to bear in mind at the time... Um, there would have been the population of wild boar and deer and and things like that in uh, Britain would have been quite abundant
0: mm-hmm.
1: So I mean they would have eaten it, it, it would have depended on how good the hunters in your settlement were to be honest, wouldn't it? Um, if you've mm. got rubbish hunters, then they're not going to catch anything if you've got good ones. And if you're, say, if you're near like a nice lake or something, then you can go fishing and bring back lots of fish and stuff like that. And obviously they would have farmed things like carrots and cabbages and things like that. And people would have gone and foraged out local mushrooms and and berries. So I think people would have eaten actually a very, very healthy, good, well-rounded diet. I mean, we were talking on the wellness uh, uh, (laughs) live a few weeks ago about the paleo diet. It would have been very similar to that, minus the potatoes, obviously, that all the Irish were having them. I mean, i'm not sure
0: <laughs> but as we we know that wasn't entirely true so a big being very naughty exactly. there.
1: yeah
0: yeah so um yeah so what one other um, I mean, I, uh, ah i uh, i was trying to think of um i had a, a fact i i'm having a blonde moment at the moment because i was uh, oh yeah i know what i was going to talk about it was literature so um uh probably uh the the um anglo saxon culture would have been as Callum says, very similar to Viking in terms of um, uh, the, the the heroes and the legends and the myths, etc. And I would, uh, one, of, one of the things, one of the reasons we do these programs is to, to stimulate interest in the subject and try to get uh, people to uh, look into things they might otherwise not have done. So, um, I, I, as, as Callum probably knows a bit more than me, he'll probably do a better job of this, but um, one notable piece of literature from the period which um, many of you will probably uh, know about and uh, and of course there has now been a a major film uh, about it uh, is Beowulf Um, and if I just tell you a a little uh, story which is relevant to me is uh, Callum and I as I think he said last week both went to a primary school called Wendon St George's um, and um, I think it was in my final year so i would have been 10 and a half or something uh we actually did um a production of beowulf could you believe uh and i can remember as a little 10 year old uh how proud i was to have my sheepskin whatever it was and my leggings and all that you know um and, and and uh you know the whole thing about beowulf it's a it's a really terrific story it's um it's a really lovely saga, you know, with with the the sort of villain being a, a monster called Grendel, uh, and the hero is Beowulf. And, um, and I think there's another very famous piece of literature from the period, Cullen, but it's got out of my mind, so I don't know whether you can you can rescue me there.
1: No, I I, I cannot. I I am um, sad to say. I... <laughs>
0: <laughs> Perhaps next week I'll um do some more research and we'll. We'll say, ah, oh, you know, last week we didn't couldn't think of both the um, the references, but actually this is what it is.
1: Yeah, sure. No, that'd be good. Yeah, no, I, I actually I didn't really look into um many sort of like literary works like that, but no, it, it's very interesting. Obviously, Beowulf is is hugely famous.
0: Yeah, so you know they would have sat there with their sagas and their um you know reminiscing of great great um, heroes and all this sort of thing. So um. Oh, so it's, it's, it's an, an amazing time, and um, I suppose um, before we we we, we leave uh, today's show and this period of history, um, we probably we probably ought to talk about some characters. So um, probably the person who who would be the dominant, in my opinion, and you may disagree. So that'll be good. Um, the person who I think would be the dominant Anglo-Saxon character of this period would be a guy called Offer. Uh, yeah. And uh, that's O-F-F-A And um, for instance, I think I think this is true even to this day. Um, there is a feature called Offa's Dyke, which yeah, basically right. determines uh, a large part of the Anglo-Welsh border. That's I think right. That's yeah. true. King Offa himself. So you going to take? Sorry, you, you take over if you want to. Yeah.
1: No, I was just going to say it's a hundred percent true. Yeah. So Offa's Dyke was basically the border between England and Wales at the time. Um, and yeah, I hundred percent agree i think the general consensus among historians is that um before king alfred the greatest saxon anglo-saxon was Offa, king of mercia
0: yes he was king of mercia and he he was very dominant won lots of battles um i'm not quite sure did he end up getting killed himself i think he did i'm not certain of
1: that um i'm i'm Oh, uh, I know that he died in 796 AD. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how he died. I have to say. Yeah. So. I, uh, think, that probably, I think that he probably actually would have died a natural death.
0: Okay. I think um, just in winding down. Um, and again, I think you know it, it'll be interesting to get feedback from listeners today as to sort of what things you find interesting or not. I I have actually made some effort to read Old English myself. Uh, and I retain a few words um just uh, which I think i 'd like to share with you because i 'm sure you 'd find that fascinating so for instance, um you know I said earlier that over half of the words uh still in in use in English today come all the way back to the fifth century, and the general the general uh general way of looking at uh, our language today is that the posh words tend to be French and the basic words tend to be anglo saxon um, sorry, please just come in. I don't know what that's supposed to mean. Miller. Miller. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so yes, yeah, she's just saying that people's names like Miller, etc., are um, uh, come from that period. You know, um, it's very distracting having an audience. Um, I've, 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 I, 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 it's think quite. The,
1: the best example for people listening is um, so say like the Normans would have been used to eating the food, but the Saxons grew it. So we know what nowadays know as You know, if we eat a cow, (laughs) we call it beef, because in Norman it would have been – that's what it would have been, beef. Yeah. Yeah, whereas um, obviously the Saxon Saxon word would have been cow, though. So you've got cow as opposed to beef. Chicken would have been considered like a a cheaper meat that the Normans wouldn't have wanted to eat, so that's why there isn't um, two two words for chicken. Um, Things like that, you know? Um, Yeah, okay. You've got
0: pork and pig, things
1: like that. Pork and pig. Yeah,
0: so – so um, I just I just wanted to share a few words with people before we finished. Um, so, for instance, ship um, sh- ship in, uh, in the fifth century was S-C-I-P uh, and S and C make sure. So actually, uh, the Anglo-Saxon chap you talked to in the fifth century would have understood a word he was saying, actually, uh, would have actually said you know, den ship or something. Den shipper, probably, is how we would have said it. Uh, but the, the word, so it doesn't look, it looks a bit uh, odd to look at a word S-C-I-P, but actually you say ship. Uh, yellow, for instance, is J-E-L-U. Um, and again, it looks a bit odd, but actually how it was pronounced was yelu, So it's, it's nearly the same word, you know. Um, if you look at uh, the inscription on Alfred's Jewel, which was found Again, uh, not very far from our house in Athelney, um, the jewel actually says "Alfred hatme me mat," uh, which mostly means "Alfred had me made." And I think you know you can see uh, even from today that you know if you say to someone "Alfred hatme me mat," what does that mean? Well, it's obviously "Alfred had me made." You know, it's 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 nearly there, isn't it? You know.
1: Yeah. No. Oh, yes. Very interesting. Yeah. So Eddie any other
0: um, observations on this period that we want to give before we sign off yeah Um, just to focus sorry sorry just to focus your mind so next week um we're obviously going to go uh we're going to go from sort of the end of the period we've got to today uh up to uh the emergence of of alfred so just wanted to say that to you uh to focus your remarks okay yeah
1: um, just a couple of interesting things um just to get i'd be interested in what people's opinions on this are or if they want to start doing some digging themselves on what you know your your the listeners' views are on the uh anglo saxon in, invasion or assimilation um you know did did you think that they were a, an invading force that sort of slaughtered all the the romano british people and imposed their will do you think that it was a bit of both do you think that it was um you know, you know, that they negotiated, but just to give you a, an in, an interesting fact, um, historians know that during the Roman occupation, the population of Britain would have been, or Romano Britain, so England, would have been between two and six million, so we know that. What's interesting to, to mention is that by the time the Doomsday Book was written in 1087, so 500 years later, yeah. the population was only about two million, so... There's possibly up to four million people less in England in 1087 than there was in 500 AD. So it's interesting to think why that was. Was that was that because the Saxons came in and slaughtered everyone and yeah, um, really? that, that that put down the population? Was that why was that? Was that purely because there no. were so many Romans in Britain and when they pulled out, it left such a huge void? It's it's, it's food for thought though.
0: Yeah, I'm 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 actually gonna take that as a challenge. So I'm gonna I'm gonna reply to you on that next week, Callum. Um I, I also wanted I also wanted to um to give the people's answer, in my opinion, to your 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 points about what do people think. I, I actually said people don't think anything because they don't know anything about it. Um and and, and that sounds very rude to, to listeners, but I think that um I don't know I don't understand why. Uh, And we're going to do something about it in our own small way. So I I think that uh, a lady called Ethelfled, who we're going to do a a dedicated single whole program on, uh, lays claim to be probably one of the three greatest English women of all time. And 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 I'm looking forward to you, uh, perhaps sparring with you on that one. And then um, most people are, are aware of Alfred without probably understanding the context of his reign and when it was. I suspect if you you stop the average person in the street and say, have you heard of King Alfred? They'd go, yeah. And then if you said, when did he live? They would be hundreds of years out, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. I'm certain of that. Um, And then of course, um, you've got Alfred's grandson, Athelstan, who um, as we, I think we discussed yesterday, lays claim to be, um, you could even say he was the greatest king in English history. And and what my point is, is that, uh, you know, history and geography today, um, you know, if you're looking at the people under 30, it's badly taught, or it's taught in a very generic fashion. And even even when I was at school, where, um, you know, we went into sort of quite, quite detail in history, and as you know, I've, I did A-level history myself, and so I know a lot about history. Um, history tended to start at 1066. Um, and if you look at most charts about the monarchs of, of England and, and, and Great Britain, uh, they tend to start with William I. You know, mm. William the Conqueror is, uh, and if you're lucky, you might get Edward the Confessor, um, who, of course, was the king that, that died and caused all the trouble that led to William the Conqueror uh, coming in the first place. But, you know, this whole period of history is is largely ignored. And One of the things that has been a delight, and I think that is a word I would use, has been a delight. And you've been very fortunate, Callum, because you've been born uh, in this time. Whereas for me, it took, I don't know, 50 years for this to happen. Um, You know, um, the only programme I can remember when I was younger that had any relevance to what we've talked about today was a programme called Arthur of the Britons, uh, which starred someone called Oliver Tobias uh, and I, I actually watched a couple of episodes a few months ago. Um, so I'd encourage you guys to go on YouTube and, and watch a, a couple of episodes of Arthur of Britain's. Cause that's quite good. But you know, um, and there were, there were Hollywood films like uh, the Viking one with Kirk Douglas and Tony Curtis, for instance, that's played a lot on uh, BBC, especially at Christmas. But um, in terms of sort of quality dramas and films, uh, there was you know pre- precious little to do with uh Anglo-Saxon times, you know. Whereas of course now, um we've we've almost gone the other way and now we've got lots of wonderful uh programmes and films about this period. So I think you know I think my point is Callum is that people wouldn't know, they don't care, uh they haven't even thought about it probably. You know, if you said to the average person, uh, you know, what what was going on in 300? What was going on at 600? What's going on 900, Tell me. I think they just look at you blankly. You know, and obviously, one of the reasons we're doing these programs is to is to see if we can do something about that.
1: Yeah, sure. And um, I think I think sometimes uh, people, some people that aren't interested in history, their their attitude can be a little bit like, well, you know, what that was yesterday. Why why do I care about that? I care about tomorrow. And I think um, one thing that I know personally has is, is helped me form um, a great deal of my decisions is you you can learn so much about how to act in the present and the future by what happened in the past because what you see is just a, a, a cycle of history repeating itself century after century after century yes with new technology slightly different people but you see the same um, problems rising time and time again politically um with war issues yeah, yeah. um you can look look at look at the results of the past. You know, like you can almost like see it as like um as like the meta-analysis of the past. You know, rather than taking a hundred studies um, and, and making a meta-analysis out of it, look at a hundred oh. times in the past that this happened. But what were the outcomes? So if you're yeah. if you're faced with um, whether it's you as an individual or you as a country or whatever, if you're faced with a problem nowadays, well look to the past. You know what happened then? You know, oh, if I take this course of action or if we take this course of action, we know we're probably going to fail. Um, we'll be doomed because look what happened in the past. So, yeah, okay. you know, you know, it might not sound the most glamorous thing, but we should probably go this route because this is the tried and tested method. And this is the one that's worked in the past, you know.
0: OK, Callum. Well, I think that's um I think that's enough for today. So um, as I said earlier, I think um, one of the things that is emerging uh, in our early days of um, bringing all these media programs to you and, and our radio station is that the history programs in particular are very popular. Uh, so we get, we get a lot more listeners when we talk about history. Uh, and, and as you can tell, both um, both the Viking and the Cuddly Viking um, one of my great pleasures is that Cullen will end up looking like me, and he'll hate it. Um, and he'll do everything he can. Look at him there, shaking his little head. He'll say, "No, I won't. I'll still be ripped when I'm 7,500." Um, so um, you know, we, as you can tell, we really enjoy um, uh, the, 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 you know, the, the historical journey. Uh, we've got a lot of information, and we're really looking forward to sharing that with you. So we've got a dedicated series over eight weeks of taking you through. Uh, mm-hmm. Romano, British period, all the way through to um, uh, 1066. So, thank you ever so much, Callum, for that, and uh, I really look forward to discussing the next saga in the development of England as a country, which, of course, is still some way off. Um, and uh, mm-hmm. you look after that lovely uh, that lovely daughter of yours, and we'll talk next week.
1: Yes, yeah, sounds great. I look forward to it.
0: And then Gosh. in closing, in closing, because I couldn't find the Anglo-Saxon number one from the period. Um, so, obviously, that's one thing they didn't very well. They didn't have a, a stock at Echner and Watermana uh, That was a little joke, by the way. Um, so, we're, we're not going to be able to play some Anglo-Saxon music today. So, we're actually going to play out today with one of my favourite bands and uh, one of my favourite um, songs of all time, which anyone that's seen me after a few drinks... Um, and um as has seen me at live gigs, um we'll we'll know uh, what was that what was the band that we used to like that, that Joe Wynn was in? Snapper. Uh, Snapper, yeah. Snapper used to do a fantastic um cover version of Hashpipe by Weezer. Uh Weezer are just a, an amazing group. And uh, this is this is um I'd say one of my favorite songs of all time. So uh, in in due homage to our our fine Germanic tribe ancestors. Uh, I don't know quite how they were to pronounced Weezer, but uh, they're playing out today with, with Hashpipe by Weezer. You have a great weekend. We've really enjoyed ourselves today. It's been a, a defining moment in Aspen Waite's life, and I, I do admit to having a bit of a blubber earlier during my radio program. So thanks for tuning in. Really appreciate it. Tell your friends all about it, and Callum and I look forward to sparring again next week. Thanks, guys. Bye.